about we go to Mark chapter 9? You'll, you'll like this fellow right there. How about that guy? I don't know who he is, but we own the rights to use his image. So there he is. He reminds me of a guy I know. I'll not say who. Nobody around here, but anyway. But notice his T-shirt. says, I'm number one. I'm number one. Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin reading in verse number 33. And Jesus came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. He took a child and set him in the midst of them, And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because ye belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. We have uh, recently talked about a mountaintop foreshadowing, the transfiguration of Christ, a misshapen faith. Last week we talked about four lessons about God's attributes, and we took that from Matthew 17, which is what happened between verse 32 and verse 33. But in keeping with my alliteration, a mountaintop foreshadowing, a misshapen faith, about money from a fish. That's what happened, money from a fish. So if you need something to put there. His, omniscient, his omniscience regarding our circumstances, his omnipotence over creation, his immutability regarding completion, his wisdom regarding conflict. And now tonight, tonight we want to look at this subject, a mindset that is fleshly. A mindset that is fleshly. Now it's important to know that we're not talking about the mindset of the crowd the people that are gathered around, this is a mindset that exists within the 12 disciples, those closest to Jesus in all the world, a mindset that is fleshly. The root of this story is pride. It's appearance, it's effects. Now, the opposite of pride would be humility. Which do you think God would rather see in our lives? Pride? or humility? Humility. Now, what is humility? Humility is not Eeyore Christianity where you walk around with your head hung low. Woe is me. I'm just nothing. I'm just, I'm just a speck on this earth that takes us. No, that's not humility. In fact, that is almost in itself a form of pride because it draws attention to yourself for all the wrong reasons. What humility is, is an accurate assessment of yourself in light of God's Word and God's expectations. That's what humility is. In fact, what's the ideal position of humility? You find it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Listen to what it says. This is the ideal. Only let your conversation, your lifestyle, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs 
that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the ideal posture of the Christian, striving together of one mind for the sake of the gospel. Okay, that's what we're shooting for. Now tonight we're going to look at two clear examples of something on the part of the disciples, and I'm going to add that here just so everybody understands what we're talking about. And we see our fellow here with his I'm number one t-shirt. We're talking about arrogance. Arrogance. And what we see in the disciples in this portion of chapter 9 can be defined as nothing other than arrogance. And we're all capable of it, aren't we? We sure are. We're all capable of it. Have I prayed yet? I haven't. Okay. I'm slipping. Well, let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, I sure do need your help. I pray, God, that you would just uh, guide my words, my thoughts. May I leave out that which wouldn't please you, and may I put in that which would, and be wholly used of you tonight. Lord, forgive me for the many ways I fail you. As best I know at this moment, I'm right with you. But, Lord, if there's something in my life that needs to be dealt with, if you'll make it clear to me, Lord, I'll confess it, and I'll do my very best to make it right. Father, right now, Lord, I just need your help and your touch. And I pray that Jesus will be lifted up. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. A mindset that is fleshly, particularly we're talking about arrogance. I'm number one. I'm number one. It's, it's interesting. This is especially troubling, given what the disciples have just been a party to. Three of them in particular have just stood and seen the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. You'd think that'd be a humbling thing. But all of them, all 12 of them have heard Jesus once again remind them of his coming sufferings, his death, all that comes with that. And this issue of arrogance, this is not going to be the last time that we see this. It comes up over and over and over and over. So let's begin in verses 33 through 37. Let's begin, first of all, with an arrogant endeavor. An arrogant endeavor. What's an endeavor? An endeavor is something that you try to do. You try to undertake. And they have an endeavor that's, that just, just reeks of arrogance. Verse 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, Was it, What is it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? They arrive at what is likely, not certainly, but what is likely Peter's house in Capernaum. I, I think it probably was Peter's house. Can't say that for sure, but it would make sense. Peter lived there, and Jesus needed a, a headquarters there, so Peter's house would probably make sense. And along the trip, the disciples have been arguing over something, but trying to do so away from Christ's earshot. Jesus is likely walking at the front of the group, and they're in the back having a, having a discussion, like me and my wife call it, an argument. By the way, this is what our kids sometimes do in the back seat of the car, isn't it? They go at it and hope we don't notice. Of course we notice. And we'll pull this. Wouldn't it have been something if Jesus said, if y'all don't knock it off, we're going to pull this caravan off the side of the road, and I'm going to deal with it right now. But he didn't. He just sat quietly. He just sat quietly. An arrogant endeavor. We see in verse 33, first of all, we see the Savior's question. The Savior's question. 
What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? Now, according to Luke, Jesus already knew the answer. Luke 9, 47, and Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart, speaking of the same situation. So why did he ask the question? It's very much like when, when, when he was in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve were not in their normal place and he called for them. He knew exactly where they were. Why did he ask the question? To bring them face to face with their sin, face to face with the problem. That's why he asked the question. And so it reveals, the Savior's question reveals the, the uh, students' quarrel. These students of Jesus had a quarrel. What was it that ye disputed among yourselves, by the way? This dispute, a debate, and this debate is on the most arrogant subject they can possibly come up with at that moment. The great old Baptist preacher Alexander McLaren says this, after all that they had been through, the transfiguration, Jesus speaking on his death, their ambitions were stirred, but not their affections. Hey, Christian, that's an easy thing to happen. Our ambitions get stirred, but not our affections. If I go off to some preacher's conference or some big meeting, and I see I'm in some big church, and I see they've got this program going on, and they've got this going on, and they've got this over here that they're doing, and I come back with all kinds of ideas, my ambition stirred, but not my affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, then it was a waste of time. The number one thing is that my love for Christ be magnified and grown. And that's not what happened here. Their love for Christ wasn't grown, but their ambition was. They're starting to, they're still hung up on the millennial kingdom and, and Jesus setting himself up, their Messiah, and they're still hung up on where they'll be in all of that. And they had that trouble a lot. They will be forced to articulate the subject of their argument, and this rightly leads to their embarrassment. So you've got the Savior's question that reveals the student's quarrel, and then when he calls them on it, it yields the shameful quiet. <laughs> Verse 34, but they held their peace. Oh, parents, we know all about this, don't we? Kids are fussing, carrying on, yelling, and all kinds of things, just raining down fire on each other. And then as soon as one of you steps in, what is going on in here? A shameful quiet. Oh, no. You made plenty of noise a minute ago. I want to hear an answer to my question. Um, but no, come on. Happens in class sometimes. Students won't be quiet in class, and then when you call them on it, all of a sudden the silence is deafening. Now, if we could figure out a way to keep it like that. As they're forced to verbalize the issue, shame rightfully ensues. They are embarrassed to admit the true nature of their quarrel, and much Holy Ghost conviction takes place when we see our sin as Christ does. If we would take the time to look at ourselves and to verbalize and to, and to, and to lay out exactly what we're doing, what we're thinking in view of how Christ sees things, we'd be ashamed too. So what exactly was their quarrel? The Savior's question 
reveals the student the uh, student's quarrel, which leads to a shameful quiet. What was that quarrel? You ready? A selfish quest. A selfish quest. What were they striving to do? What was their endeavor? Verse 34. But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Man, it doesn't get more selfish than that, does it? It doesn't get more arrogant than that. Who would be the greatest? Now, you can get away with that kind of stuff in boxing. Muhammad Ali made a career out of it. But there's no room for that in ministry, is it? Who should be the greatest? This presumably is what they're thinking of is who's going to take highest office within his reign as Messiah. It'd be reasonable to conclude that Peter, James, and John saw themselves as having a higher place in that hierarchy because, you know, after all, they were the inner circle, and they got to do things that other disciples didn't get to do. By the way, do you know why he chose Peter, James, and John? Do you know why? Because he wanted to. And that's all we need to know. He's sovereign. God can do what he wants. I have thoughts, but they're not germane to this. This selfish quest. Would you agree with me that this is a natural human pursuit? It is. It's natural. But here's what we've got to be careful about. Natural does not equal noble. Natural does not equal noble. Well, pastor, I mean, yeah, my kid's just a raven lunatic of evil, but it's just natural. Well, maybe it is, but natural doesn't equal noble, does it? Well, yeah, I, preacher, I know I'm married and shouldn't have girlfriends, but, you know, it's just natural. Well, even if it is, it doesn't make it noble. By the way, there's, there's a, um, a, um, a premise that is being advanced in a lot of different debates in our society these days that we're not supposed to say something is nat- something that is natural is sinful. There's a whole lot of natural things that are sinful. And, and, and even, even if I accept the premise that something is natural, that does not make it right. That does not make it preferable. That does not make it noble. There are times that I have had the natural desire and, and, and some would even say the understandable desire to smack somebody in the face. Doesn't make it noble. Doesn't make it right. Natural does not equal noble. It's natural for me to lay in bed all day. It's natural for me to eat whatever I want. It, it's nat- all kinds of things are natural, but that doesn't make them noble. What these guys are after is natural. It's natural to look out for number one, isn't it? But it's not noble. And God calls us to be noble. How does he measure Christians? What does it say in Acts? These were more what? Noble than those in Thessalonica. Speaking of the Bereans, we're to be noble. 
This, this issue is so prevalent. Do you know when the last time we see it is? This idea of who's going to be the greatest? At the Lord's Supper. There still are. Jesus has just washed their feet. He has given out the bread. He's given out the juice. He's talked of his suffering. And they're still arguing about it. I can prove it. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. They've just finished the bread and the juice. There was also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? They're still arguing over it. And by the way, hey, parents, if we're not careful, we can further this kind of a mindset. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then came to Jesus the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, the other on thy left in thy kingdom. See, the other, other gospels lay it out to be James and John. But Matthew gives us the extra little bit of information that mama's behind that. And there's a whole lot of mamas and daddies out there whose kids can do no wrong, and their kids deserve the best of everything. And what they are doing is they are perpetuating this idea of my kids number one. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my kids. And I want them to enjoy all the blessings that God has for them. But that doesn't mean that I need to perpetuate this idea that only the only thing that matters is what they want. I'm all for being an advocate for your kid, but if your kid's wrong, they're wrong. Boy, you got quiet in here. They're not in here. You can amen. So what we see here is we see the Savior's question that reveals the student's quarrel, that, that opens up to a shameful quiet and reveals the selfish quest, and then we see the significant qualities. Jesus gives some qualities that need to be present in order to deal with this. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them. That's, that's significant right there. When it says he sat down and called them unto them, he is taking the posture, the traditional posture of a rabbi. And so what he does is he sits down I have this up here in case. So far, so good. He sits down and he says, gather around. Have a seat. He didn't always do that. But he did it this time. You know why? Because they needed to understand very clearly who the master is. And what he's about to say, they need to hear. All right? Have a seat. I'm going to teach you something. So he takes that posture of a rabbi. All right? And he lays out three qualities that will help discourage this arrogant, fleshly mindset. The first, well, I'm just going to give them to you. Humility, ministry, and kindness. If you will endeavor to exhibit humility ministry and kindness, you will find this arrogance very hard to take root in your life. Let's go through it and see. 
Verse 35. He sat down, called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, watch this, the same shall be, number one, last of all. That's humility. Last of all. There's something that I tend to do. I hope you don't think I'm trying to tell you how humble I am because that's not the point. When we have meals around here and that kind of thing, I I, I oftentimes am the last person to get something to eat. And that's on purpose. And and y'all are so sweet. Pastor, get up there and get you something to eat. I'd rather wait. And it's not because I'm trying to exhibit humility, because when you think you're humble, you're not. But I'm really trying to keep myself under subjection. Because I've heard horror stories about preachers over the years in which they are exalted. And, you know, that clergy laity distinction, you know, well, the man of God needs this and the man of God needs I just, I don't want to go anywhere near that territory. The only reason that I stand higher than you do is because that's the only way you get to see me. And if you don't get to see me, then your day's lesser for that, isn't it? No. <laughs> but I just, you know, I just don't want to be that guy. And so I'll get, now, I will say this. If there's something particular that I really want to eat and I'm worried it won't be there by the time I get up there, I will sneak it when you're not looking. But other than that, I don't mind waiting. But there's, there's a thing called deference in which we need to be willing to let others go first in life. You know? There's a humility that's involved in being last of all. Because think about the, the, the acrostic for joy. Jesus first, others next, yourself last. Man, there's great theology in that. All right? But then not just humility, ministry. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Servant of all. I've never known anybody that was truly a servant that had an issue with arrogance and pride. But you know what I have found? A lot of the people that do struggle with pride and arrogance, don't do much in the way of service. If you don't have some area of your life in which you're serving somebody else, watch out, because that's where pride's going to smooth in, just sneak in and just watch out. Humility, ministry, and then kindness. Verse 36 took a child and set him in the midst of them. Would it be reasonable to conclude, if they're in Peter's house, would it be reasonable to conclude maybe this is one of Peter's kids? The Bible never says he has kids, but he does have a wife. And if they're in Peter's house, this could have been one of Peter's kids, maybe. But somebody's kid is there. He didn't go out on the street and just snatch one. He took a child and set him in the midst of them. By the way, that word child is a young child. 
it can be an infant, but my guess is probably around Asher's age, around Liam's age, somewhere in there. He's a child. He took a child, set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, there's something significant there too. And I don't, I don't have any kids in here, that, any of my kids that I would feel comfortable illustrating this. So I'm going to use my wife. <laughs> so he starts out just putting them in the midst of them. Come here, honey. Let me, let me. It's a really tall kid. So he starts, he starts out with them in the midst of them. Okay. So puts the kid in the midst of them. There you go, kid. But then he says, takes him up in his arms. What, what do we see there? All right, fellas, I, I want to teach you something. Come here. Come here. And he takes this kid up in his arms. Why? Real simple answer. You know why? Because he loves kids. Thank you, dear. Because he loves kids. C- come here. Come here. Get up here. Get up here. And I'm, I'm of the conviction, well, conviction is a strong word. I'm of the, the thought process that kids love Jesus. And it wasn't because he did miracles. It wasn't because he gave them presents. It's because kids quicker than anybody know if somebody's for real and if they're loving. And I think Jesus was just fun to be around. I think Jesus, I think the Savior of all mankind gave piggyback rides and made funny noises and act like a gorilla. Preacher, that's the Lord. You're right. And he loves kids. And, and he took this kid up in his arms and just, just held him and squeezed him because he loves them. Still does, by the way. I expect my Savior takes a dim view of abortion. The, the word child here is diminutive, a young child, maybe even a baby, could have been one of Peter's children's na, 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 children. Now, here's the interesting thing. Rabbis of that day typically invested little to no time in kids under 12 years old until they came to their bar mitzvah, the son of the covenant. Until they came to their bar mitzvah, rabbis didn't have any time for kids. They were considered a, a waste of time until they were 12. But Jesus takes a child up in his arms as a, an object lesson who is almost assuredly less than 12. What is he saying just in doing that? Show kindness and invest in those who offer no benefit to you. If you're just showing kindness to people that can respond in kind and do good to you, that's really not that big a deal. But when you're showing kindness to people that have nothing to offer, to people that can't return it, boy, then you're getting somewhere. Now, something that's really interesting, you may or may not know this, the Old Testament was written predominantly in Hebrew. The New Testament written exclusively in what's called Koine Greek. But that's not what they spoke. 
Jesus oftentimes spoke a blended language called Aramaic. And did you know that the word for child and the word for servant in Aramaic is the same word? It makes no distinction. So what do we take from that? There's no serving Christ without a childlike spirit. You want to be a servant? Be like a child. Be like a child. Can we sum up these significant qualities, humility, ministry, kindness, and this? How we treat other believers. Look at, look at, look at what it says. Verse 37. Whosoever shall receive, such in one, shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. How we treat other believers is how we're treating Christ. And can I tell you, there's no room for arrogance in that. Who should be the greatest? No, humility, ministry, and kindness. So we begin with an arrogant endeavor. Who should be the greatest? But next, in our next section, we have an arrogant exclusion. Verse 38. And John answered him. This is interesting to me. John the beloved. John considered the most tender of the 12 disciples. John. May I remind you, him and his brother were called the sons of thunder. Him and his brother were the ones that asked Jesus if they could call down, call down fire on these Samaritans. They were giving them problems. So John was maybe not as tender as we think he was, even though he speaks about love more than anybody else. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Verse 38 again. John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. We, we start, first of all, with the reason for the statement. Can I be candid with you? My first question that I need answered is, John, what in the world possessed you to bring this up now? Jesus has just given you a lesson and told you that you're wrong and that you're being arrogant. Why in the world would you bring this up now? What are you thinking, John? What is your reason for bringing this up? Well, I think there might have been a couple of possibilities there. First of all, it could have been a deflecting curve. He might be deflecting. He might be trying to change the subject, although he chose a dumb way to do it. You ever done that? Try to change the subject? It could be that he brought it up because of a dented conscience. 
Often when we're under conviction, we seem, we think that it's a good idea to magnify what we think we're doing right. And so Jesus is displeased with our attitude. So let me, let me bring up something that he'll be pleased with. Wrong again, John. He's not going to be pleased with this either. It could have been the result of a deflated confidence. This man that was not even a part of their group was successful in doing what they could not do in verses 14 through 29. They had just had a problem not able to cast out a demon. This guy, they don't even know, was able to cast out a demon, and maybe they've got a little bit of deflated confidence. But I think I know which one it is. I may be wrong. I don't think it's a deflecting curve. I don't think it's a defeated conscience. I mean, that, that may be a dented conscience, rather, or a deflated confidence. All these things may play into it, but I think it's a doleful confession. I think John understands what Jesus is saying, and John being tender like he is. See, I've always read this as, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not. We forbade him. That's how I've always read it. But could it be he's saying, Master... We saw one casting out devils, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him. Could it be that John's confessing and getting something right because it's revealed to him now? He rightly understands Jesus' message and confesses this error. I kind of got a feeling that's what it is. But no matter which one it is, there's still something for us to learn from this, this reason for the statement. But then we have the reality of the statement when when it took uh, by the way joshua made a similar error it's not the first time something like this happens numbers 11 verse 26 there remained two of the men in the camp the name of the one was eldad the name of the other medad and the spirit rested upon them and they were of them that were written but went not out into the tabernacle and they prophesied in the camp and there ran a young man and told moses that eldad and medad do prophesy in the camp and joshua the son of nun the servant of moses one of his young men answered and said my lord moses forbid them they're prophesying they're doing your job make them stop sounds familiar doesn't it was well, moses say wisely and moses said unto him envious thou for my sake would God that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. That's mature right there. That's wise. But let's look at the reality of the statement. What's really going on here in verse 38? Let's read it again. Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. What really lies at the base of this attitude? There is a single root here, and it's rooted in pride. When this event took place, even if John is confessing it, when this event took place, the issue is pride. It is a legalistic, pharisaic attitude. Now remember, what is legalism? Well, holiness is when you try to get people to be more like Jesus. Legalism is when you insist on them being more like you. Now, with that in mind, note that twice John said, He followeth not us. 
J.C. Ryle said, we're all born Pharisees because we all naturally think far better of ourselves than we ought. The question was not, did he follow them, but did he follow Jesus? Hold that thought. It appears that he had power with the evil spirit. Now, this contrasts with some other events. I think of uh, Acts chapter 19, the sons of Siva. Remember the seven sons of Siva? They went in after this guy that was demon-possessed. <laughs> that demon looked at them and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but I don't know you. And that guy jumps on these seven guys and beats them senseless, takes off all their clothes, and the Bible says they ran out of the house wounded and naked. He messed them up. I confess to you one of my guilty pleasures, which I'm sure I need to stop, is every once in a while I find myself watching these ghost hunter shows. And I watch them for one reason. I don't believe in ghosts. I watch them for one reason. I want to see them actually catch what they think they're going to catch. I want to see it when that thing jumps all over them and shoots them out of that house like the sons of Siva. I want to see that. Yeah, you ain't going to hunt them anymore, are you? You morons. I should probably give it up. You know, it was possible to cast out a demon without even being saved. Did you know that? What does he say in Matthew 7? Jesus says this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name did many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. How can this be? How can somebody that doesn't know the Lord be used of the Lord in such a way? The key is three words in thy name. God blesses his word, and he blesses his son and his name in spite of us. There have been a whole lot of people that have been brought to Jesus under the preaching of unsaved preachers. Because God blesses his word. Even so, it appears that this man was a true follower of Christ because in verses 39 and 40, Jesus did not identify him otherwise. Now, if Luke chapter 10 is not chronologically um, where it is in, in, in the order of Scripture, I, it's unclear to me whether or not Jesus has already sent out that expanded group of 70 disciples. But if it happened before this, they were given these kind of powers too. So he could have been one of those 70. The point is this, it appeared as though this man did love the Lord. It appeared as though this man was serving him, and it appears as though God was using him to do good things. So the disciples simply put her off base. They're off base. So you, you see the reason for the statement. You see the reality of the statement. Now Jesus gives the right statement, <clears throat> as he always does. The right statement, verse 39. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. 
Verse 40 is a great summary verse. For he that is not against us is on our part. You know what he's saying there? It is impossible to be neutral about Jesus. You're the for him or you're not. You're either with him or you're not. Verse, uh, Matthew 12, verse 30. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Verse 41 tells us that Jesus demands that we treat other brothers and sisters with kindness and rewards us when we do. Verse 41, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, you shall not, he shall not lose his reward. So what we take from these verses, verses 39 through 41, is that Jesus tells them not to forbid him, not to stand in his way, that, that he's doing something, at least in part, that pleases him. So, how do we apply this today? Let me go ahead and issue a disclaimer. I am an independent, fundamental Baptist. I am so by conviction. I am so on purpose. I believe in the Baptist distinctives. I believe they are biblical. I am a fundamentalist, meaning that I embrace those truths that have to be accurate in order for salvation to work. The Bible has to be the inspired, infallible Word of God. Jesus has to be the Son of God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He has to have died for us substitutionarily in His atonement. He has to have rose again physically. Salvation has to be by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And He has to return because He said He would, and if He doesn't, He's a liar. Okay, So I'm a fundamentalist, I'm a Baptist, and I'm independent. Because I believe, I believe that the independent church, whatever your denomination, I believe that the independent church is the closest to the biblical example that we have. Okay? I have many friends that are Southern Baptists. See, in the next few weeks and months, there are things that we're covering by, by necessity of the different passages we're covering and everything that's going to make you possibly think that I'm trying to nudge this church in a direction. I'm not. I'm not. Um, as much as I love my friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, I wouldn't go near it with a 20-foot pole right now because the convention's having some real problems, some real problems. Um, so what I'm about to say does not mean that I'm trying to get us to open our minds and think more liberally. I hope you know me well enough to know that is not how I think or how I see things. Okay? As long as I am the pastor of this church, we will be an independent Baptist church. Okay? How do we apply this in our modern denominational culture? Some of you are old enough to remember the days when on the same platform you had R.G. Lee, Bob Jones Sr., and others. And they were all different denominations. 
Bob Jones Sr. Was a, was a Methodist. R.G. Lee was a Southern Baptist. Okay. In my library, you find books by men like A.W. Tozer, Billy Sunday. I, I, got, I got a couple books by some Pentecostals. Would you agree with me that we must separate from those that advance false doctrine, doctrine that sends people to hell? Would you agree with me on that? We better separate from that. Would you agree with me that we, we need to be guarded but loving with those of faulty doctrine, doctrine that doesn't send people to hell but maybe is not altogether scriptural? Guarded but loving. Lord, please help me to to handle this rightly. There are a whole lot of good people out there that love God, that can benefit this church, but they're not jot and tittle like we are. Constitutionally, I'm not allowed to bring somebody in here to preach to you that's not an independent Baptist. I think we need to revisit that. What? Listen to me. I got a friend of mine that's a missionary. He's been here. He's visited here several times. He loves God with all his heart. He's brethren. Are you familiar with the brethren denomination? Do you know what the basic difference between them and us is? They baptize three times instead of one. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Boy, that's a strong doctrinal difference, isn't it? And that's pretty much it. Do you know that? Man, it's getting cold in here, y'all. Just stay with me. Admittedly, and I didn't even think about it, I didn't even think about it until here recently. When we have different college groups in, like Pensacola, I shouldn't let their leader preach in here. You know why? Because Pensacola Christian College is a non-denominational college. I didn't even think about that. Because everybody I know there is Baptist. You see how if we're not careful, we can, we can stop being independent Baptists and start becoming isolated Baptists. Now I'm going to tell you the best kept secret in all of fundamentalism. There's folks out there that aren't Baptist that love Jesus as much or more than we do. And there's folks out there that are independent Baptists that don't love Jesus like they should. Now, remember what I just told you. I'm not taking us out of being an independent Baptist, but we need to start seeing some things. Do you understand? The world is having a heyday running roughshod over this country while Baptists are squabbling over stuff that does not matter. 
I've told you about my friend, David Osborne. He's a free will Baptist. They believe you can lose your salvation. I think they're dead wrong, but nobody's going to hell because of that. But I think they're wrong. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But can I tell you something? That fellow's knocking on doors and trying to win people to Jesus and trying to do right and trying to build a church, and I'm for him. But he's not independent Baptist. Well, he can be wrong if he wants to on the baptismal, losing your salvation. That's fine. Lose yours if you want. I'm keeping mine, going to heaven. He's also wrong on foot washing. Why do I not believe in foot washing? Number one, because I don't think it meets the criteria of an ordinance. Number two, it's gross. <laughs> well, we ain't having anything to do with them folks over there. They're foot washing Baptists. So what? You can't get away from what Jesus is saying here. Yes, be independent, but we don't need to be isolated. Man, I'm making a lot of people nervous tonight, Aaron. We must rejoice when the gospel is preached, when Christ is lifted up and the word is proclaimed. I was asked by someone not long ago, if you were invited to preach at a church outside of your denomination, would you go? In most cases, yeah, I would. You're not a very good Baptist. Good. Matthew invited Jesus to his house. Did he go? He sure did. Now, there are some places that I would have to draw the line because I would be fearful that my association with them would compromise my testimony. But if I was invited by a church that was of, of, of close enough faith that would maybe faulty in some things but not, not false doctrine, if I was invited to come and preach and be an encouragement, I would so long as they didn't try to put any limitations on what I preach. I would! There was an apologist years ago that got some flack for going to Brigham Young University to speak. Now, I would not go preach at a Mormon temple. Let me make that clear. But he did. He went to speak at a Mormon temple at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. And people got up in arms and said, I can't believe you went there. He goes, well, do you know the whole story? They invited me to come, and I agreed to so long as I chose the subject upon which I spoke. And the subject that I gave them was the absolute and total sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. He said, and I went into Brigham Young University, and I gave the Bible gospel. Now, you didn't have a problem when I did that at Penn State University. And you didn't have a problem when I did that at Ohio State University, and boy, do they need it. And you didn't have a problem when I did that at USC. Don't people in Provo, Utah need to hear the gospel too? We get in trouble when we start deciding which centers we're willing to preach to. Can I just tell you something? 
All nations just got a new pastor. I pray he's successful. I do. I pray that people get saved over there, and I pray that lives are changed. I pray, and I hope they pray that for us. Do I agree with everything they believe over there? I do not. I do not. My understanding is all nations is Church of God, and they have some Pentecostal roots and all of that. I don't agree with that. But can I tell you something? There's people over there that love God. I got enough enemies. I don't need to make up some. You know? We've got two churches that have been planted under the shadow of this steeple in the time I've been here. Two of them. Two of them. Now, I'll be honest with you. Initially, I'm kind of thinking, we're here. <laughs> but you know what I had to come to? If they're preaching the gospel and people are being saved and lives are being changed and people are being helped, I'm for it. I'm for it. But we independent Baptists have gotten so independent, we've become isolationists, and we can't get along with anybody, and the world is just having a heyday, and the devil's having a heyday because we're too busy arguing about stupid stuff. Yo, I'm a King James guy. I know why I'm a King James guy. I'm going to use the King James version of the Scripture. But you know what? There's people out there that use other versions that love Jesus. There's people out there that if I'm honest with you, their music is a little bit more beady than I'm comfortable with. They once asked Stonewall Jackson if he smoked. He said, no, I find I like it too much. So people ask me about music. Sometimes I don't listen to it because I like it too much. It's not that I don't like it. I'm just nervous where I'm going to go with it. You know? I'm sorry, I'm dry as I can be. Which probably means I'll quit. Y'all, I'm not saying we need to dip our colors. I'm not saying that we need to relax anything. I'm just saying we need to understand that we are not the only people that are trying to love God and serve God. And we don't need to be anybody, enemies with everybody we run across. We don't. I remember a young lady I knew in college came to me. And she'd been dating this boy. And they, they were a really good couple. And he was a good guy, and she was a great girl. And I knew her from back home. And she said, Andy, I just found out something terrible about, we'll just, we'll call him Johnny. I found out something terrible about Johnny. Not this Johnny. I found out something terrible about Johnny. I'm going to break up with him. Well, what in the world did you find out? He's Calvinist. I believe Reformed theology is wrong. I believe Calvinists got it wrong. But there's a whole bunch of them out there that love God and want to do right. It did end up breaking up, and that was probably of the Lord. But, but I just look at what Jesus says here, and I can't get around it. And, and I may not have a job Sunday, but, but look at what he says. We forbade him because he followeth not us and be honest sometimes we look at other people and we don't think about their denomination or their positions or anything else we just don't like them because they're not like us and I think that's wrong what's Jesus say forbid him not for there's no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me 
For he that is not against us is on our part. He's either for me or he's not. He's with us or he's not. So cool your jets, John. If Jesus isn't offended by it, why should I be? And I've known Christians over the years, and I've been a Christian over the years, that I got more offended over some things than God did. You know, we need to be like, other than Jesus, we need to be like Paul. By the way, there's nothing here that says that Jesus said, hey, let's bring this guy in. Hey, let's go run with this guy. That's not what he said. He said, I'm just, I'm not against him. I'm not opposed to him. I got this question a lot when the, when the, uh, when the uh, Burlington revival was going on and then the Bristol revival was going on. Preacher, what do you think about that tent revival over there in Burlington? I don't know C.T. Townsend personally. I've never met him. I don't know a whole lot about him, okay? But I'll give you the same answer I've given over and over and over again. If the gospel's being proclaimed, Jesus is being lifted up, people are being saved, the Bible is being preached, then I am for it. And I'll let the Lord sort out all the other stuff. I will. Listen to what Paul said. Philippians 1. Turn there. Let's go to Philippians 1. I want you to see this. This should be our attitude. Now, listen, I don't want to be hit by a bunch of people the rest of this week. I heard Wednesday night you said you're going to take us into the convention. No. Philippians 1, verse 14. Paul says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, brethren in the Lord, he didn't say many of the Baptists. Y'all, there's no Baptist section in heaven. The Lord, just to, just to show us, he might put me next door to a Presbyterian and the Episcopalian on the other side. Now, do I understand that there's some denominations that are just... The United Methodist Church as a denomination has gone all the wrong way. The Presbyterian Church USA has gone all the wrong way. Okay? There's denominations out there that are just, they're liberal and they're gone. All right? That's not what I'm talking about. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set free for the defense of the gospel. So what does Paul say? There are some people, they've gotten bolder because I'm in prison. Now, sometimes that means that they're bold because I've inspired them to serve the Lord and they're bold for that reason. And some of them are bold because I'm not there to get in their way. But they're bold. And some of them are preaching and they love me. And some of them are preaching Christ because they're convinced they can do it better than I can. And some of them want to show me how much better they are at, I, than I, at, at it than I am. And some of them, they just want to hurt me. And some of them, they want to encourage me. All of these people are preaching Christ for different reasons. What then? Verse 18. Verse 18. 
notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Paul got to a place in his life, he didn't care why they did it. All that mattered to him was that Jesus was being preached and that people were being saved. And that's why he rejoiced. Well, I'm still an independent Baptist. I still believe what I believe. And I'm just not going to resent every minute of it. And I'm not going to be mad at everybody that doesn't see things exactly as I do. When people are preaching, the Bible's being preached, the gospel's being proclaimed, and people are being saved, I'm going to be for that. I'm going to be for it. I know that fellow down at that, preach it, preach it, that church. Huh. He does it this way. He does it that way. I can't be concerned with all that. My question is not, does he follow us? Does he follow him? Does he follow him? Now, let's, let's strike an accord right now. If there's anything about what I've just said that bothers you, I'm going to sit right up here. Come to me tonight, and let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Please don't go home and work it over. And please don't go home and pick up the phone. Come to me. And let's talk about it. But I'm telling you, if I'm the pastor that I ought to be, I've got to lead us away from stuff that just isn't helpful. And to be mad and think that everybody out there that's not just like us doesn't love God and isn't doing the work. That's not helpful. Doesn't mean we got to do it with them. Doesn't mean we got to be like them. I'm just not mad at them. Because you know what happens when we think we're the only ones that are doing right? That's when we hide in a cave and stop being useful to God. Because that's what Elijah did. I'm the only one left. So no, you're not. It's not in the Hebrew, but I'm confident God went... <laughs> There's 700 left to me that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. 700. That encourages me to know there's plenty of people out there still love God, want to do right. 